no matter how smart your team is, no matter how good your team is, no matter how brilliant they are, personality plays a role in how, and values too, play a role in how a team is going to ultimately perform. This is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. I'm Jason Blair. I'm off this week, so this week we're going to share a collaboration with the Science of Personality Podcast, hosted by Blake Loop and Ryan Sherman, who both work at Hogan Assessment Systems, an assessment provider that examines personality from every angle with well-validated tools that have been used by 75% of the Fortune 500. Hogan is the only personality assessment that shows no adverse impact based on race, gender, and national origin, and is the only one that takes the outside view by focusing on how others see you, your reputation, as opposed to how you see yourself. I'm a member of the Hogan Coaching Network, a small group of experts in the assessment, and in this episode of the Science of Personality podcast, Blake, Ryan, and I discuss what the latest research says about team effectiveness. People are the most consequential and dangerous forces on earth. Well, personality psychology is about the nature of human nature. It's about people. And wouldn't that be useful to know? I mean, it seems to me, I can't, I can't think of a more important problem. You're listening to the Science of Personality podcast, Brought to you by Hogan Assessments, the global leader in personality assessment and leadership development since 1987. Your hosts are Hogan Chief Science Officer and world-renowned personality psychologist, Dr. Ryan Sherman, along with Hogan PR Manager and resident storyteller, Blake Lepp. Hello, everybody, and thank you for listening to this special bonus episode of the Science of Personality podcast. Dream Team, The Inner Workings of Teamwork. This episode, featuring Jason Blair, Managing Partner and Certified Life Coach at Goose Creek Consulting, was originally released on November 10th, 2022, as our second installment of the Science of Personality Live. My co-host, Ryan Sherman, and I are now making the audio version available to all of our listeners who weren't able to join us on the day it occurred. We hope you enjoy this bonus episode and be on the lookout for our next edition of the Science of Personality Live in the coming months. Cheers, everybody. Hello, everybody, and welcome. I'm Blake Lepp, PR manager at Hogan Assessments and co-host of the Science of Personality podcast. And I'd like to thank all of you for joining us today for the latest edition of the Science of Personality Live. For those of you who don't know, Hogan has a bi-weekly podcast called The Science of Personality, where we bring in guests who are leaders in their field to talk about personality and the various ways it impacts our lives. We're very excited to bring the second live installment to you today with our topic, Dream Team, The Inner Workings of Teamwork. We want today's session to be engaging and interactive, so we'd love to hear what questions you may have for us. There will be a Q&A session at the end of the discussion, so if you want to submit a question, please do so using the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. It can be a little bit difficult for us to keep track of the questions coming in via the chat feature, so please be sure to use the Q&A feature if you'd like us to see your question. 
Lastly, we are recording today's discussion and it will be made available on our YouTube page at youtube.com forward slash Hogan Assessments. Also, if you're interested in viewing past webinar recordings or to see what's coming up, you can visit our webinars page at hoganassessments.com forward slash webinars. So with that out of the way, let's get started with the brief introduction of today's presenters. First, I'd like to introduce my partner in crime, co-host of the Science of Personality podcast and Hogan Chief Science Officer, Dr. Ryan Sherman. As Hogan's Chief Science Officer, Ryan is responsible for managing the primary functions within Hogan's industry-leading data science team, including client research, product development and maintenance, and overseeing Hogan's research, infrastructure, and archive. Next, I'd like to introduce our special guest, Jason Blair, Managing Partner and Certified Life Coach at Goose Creek Consulting. Jason has more than 15 years of experience working with clients on mental health, career development, and leadership development, focusing on a holistic approach to helping others improve their lives. He also has extensive experience working with organizations on team building and team effectiveness, which is what we're here to talk about today. So, Jason... Is there anything else you would like the audience to know about you before we dive into this live version of the Science of Personality podcast? Sure. Like you alluded to, 15 years of experience. I, For those of you who can see me or could see me, you can see the gray hair on the top of my head. But before that, prior to being a journalist, I was in clinical psychology. So I bring the perspective of someone who's also a mental health coach, working with groups in those kinds of settings. Also, uh, in my work in leadership development, lots of work with team development, often advising CEOs, agency heads, other officials like that. So I also bring that lens, both the lens of the workplace and sort of the clinical psychology lens to the table. Great. Well, I just want to say thanks to Jason for, for coming on the podcast today. A little other background for the audience to know about. Jason has been working uh, with us for a while Uh doing some a number of uh, really fantastic team sessions with his clients using some of the research that we've done at Hogan and really applying that uh, in a team context. And you're going to hear about that on the on the podcast today. Uh, so again, I want to say thanks so much to Jason for coming on. Jason's come on before. It was a fantastic guest for us before. So it's really good to have you back here. But I also want to say thanks to the audience members who are here participating live today. Uh, just so you know, we don't have a script or anything like that. So um, we really will be feeding off of the kinds of questions you leave as well as we get going in this podcast. Well, with, with that, let's dive into it. So, Jason, my first question is, how would you define team effectiveness? All right. So, I, you know, generally, I think you have to start with the idea, start with the question of what's a team and why do we have teams? So I, on my end, I define a team as a group of people who work together to achieve, you know, a shared goal or a shared outcome. So in, in terms of why we have teams, you know, I love the way that Ryan puts it. He talks about the idea that humans are squishy. And, you know, relative to other animals, we don't have sharp teeth or claws. We can't fly. We can't run as fast as a cheetah or a hyena. Uh, the world is a dangerous place. And in theory, we should, be, should have been gone, should have all been eaten a long time ago. And to illustrate, you know, the point about why that hasn't ha happened, I often show my clients the sunny picture of Bryce Canyon National Park out in Utah. And so it's the home to this geological formation called Thor's Hammer. 
It's amazing if you haven't seen it. It's this giant piece of sandstone and it, it's been weathered in time to sort of look like the Norse god threw it from the heavens and it just landed in Utah. But Thor's hammer isn't why I show it, uh, show that picture to them. Bryce Canyon is an enormous terrain of very clay rich, uh, soil with no river and no lake. But the Native American settlers who arrived there like a long time ago and the European settlers who came in the 19 or excuse me, the 1850s were only able to really survive because they formed teams. They traveled in packs to other areas to get food and water. You know, when it was too warm or too cold, they found a way to get shelter. You know, they built roads uh, in the plateau to retrieve firewood and timber you know, they built canals to capture rainwater and irrigate their crops and get drinking water for themselves and their animals. So, you know, scientists often highlight the opposable thumb, you know, which gives humans their sort of fine motor skills and manual dexterity. But I think the opposable thumb is really overrated because I think the reason why humans have survived and become the most dominant species is really our ability to form teams. Yeah, well, I think that's a really great example, Jason, um, you know, about that as being one of the significant human accomplishments, right, is the ability to form teams. And that's really what I think about when I think about every really major human accomplishment, one of those being survival, as you mentioned. But I think about things like being able to send people to the moon and land people on the moon, right? I mean, like, it, it seems like the kind of thing that would be absolutely unthinkable for an individual person to do. And of course, it did take a huge number of people to achieve that accomplishment, not even just people who were alive to perform that accomplishment, to work on the team and, and to, to make it all happen, but also uh, thousands of people from years before who created the basic science behind the ability to, to do that. So I guess when I think about any major human accomplishment, no matter what that accomplishment is, it almost always required some team effort. And, and I guess that's the kind of the way I think about team effectiveness is, is really accomplishing something that individuals couldn't do alone um, and, and really driving your, 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 group, uh, your group forward. Um, and sometimes uh, that's in combat, but sometimes that's in cooperation. Yep, absolutely. You know, one of the things that actually kind of hindered the Europeans' ability to actually settle that far out in Utah was the teamwork of the Comanches there in the plains, you know, fine archers, fine horsemen, but they all worked together as a team in order to leave what was west of them pretty much unsettled. But and uh, actually, Blake, that that is a really good point, because it's not just about being able to form teams, wolves, apes, all sorts of groups uh, can form teams, humans can form teams, and those teams have to compete against each other. So it's not just that ability to form teams, but what is it that goes in and makes teams most effective? That's an awesome point. So, Well, with that, Jason, it seems pretty common for people to think that team effectiveness requires team cohesion. However, in your experience, that might not always be the case. Can you explain why that is? Yeah, I think the importance of team cohesion is a bit of a myth, right? Not that it doesn't have value, but the underlying sort of theory behind it you know, some sociologists say that really social cohesion is the bond that holds society together. And psychologists have spent an enormous amount of time sort of and effort exploring cohesion as something that when you combine it with other traits, um, really influences the way that groups complete tasks. tasks. I think cohesion is actually a symptom, right? It's ultimately a successful symptom 
of what really makes teams effective. But the theory of social, uh, sort of that social cohesion being a vital component of long-term set success and competitiveness, it really sort of starts to fall apart when you start to think about every sort of major war or battle or comp- companies competing against each other, or even government agencies trying to get the attention and dollars uh, in their competition for resources in Congress. We're all competing for resources, ultimately. And supposedly, the secret sauce of cohesion and cohesive cultures is that, you know, people feel a sense of belonging, people feel valued, they commit to these common goals. It's very focused on the bonding of groups. But what the research literature really shows, it doesn't really support that idea. You know, and there's some clues out there that cohesion is nice to have, but not necessarily sort of necessary to be an effective team. So when the Ottomans and Muscovy and the Swedes had the signs on and invaded Ukraine um, in the 1600s and 1700s, the Ukrainians made alliances with the Poles and others. You know, those others, the Poles and the Ukrainians had very different cultures and not a lot of cohesion behind them, but they had a common objective and were able to work together to pursue that. You can see it with Vietnam and China, very different cultures, but in the Vietnamese or in the Vietnam War, they were able to collaborate together effectively. You know, you can see it with the Crimeans and the Ottomans, companies and their partners, teams within organizations. Cohesion may not be the most important piece of it. So even if you look at something like the five behaviors of a cohesive team, it's a model created by Patrick Lincoln that's really popular, popular in team development. It might have that name, but the five behaviors really don't have anything to do with cohesion. It has to do with trust, mastering conflict, and working toward sort of using that conflict to work toward a healthy debate team commitment, accountability, and results. And the example that I like to give is Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls in the 1990s. It's a great case study in what makes team effectiveness. So in 2020, during COVID, when all of us were locked in, I watched this, God knows how many episodes it was, documentary called The Last Dance. And it told the story of Michael Jordan and his success with the Chicago Bulls. So in the 1990s, the Bulls won six NBA championships in eight years. I learned a lot of things watching that series, not the least of which is that I do not want to be on Michael Jordan's bad side. (laughs) But one key takeaway for me was that no matter how good Jordan was, it took a team to get the job done. So it included his coach, Phil Jackson, standout players um, like Scottie Pippen, Role players like Dennis Rodman, John Stockton, Tony Kukoc, Steve Kerr, and Bill Cartwright. So Jordan was this fierce competitor who could make moves on the court that his competitors could only dream of. He once, I remember this one time, he scored 48 points on a not-so-heel broken foot. You know, he was also sort of less known to fans, a notorious trash talker. But in the last dance, you you kind of learn that hate might not be too strong a word for how uh, his teammates, teammates felt about him. You know, Jordan called the veteran Cartwright, who is six years older than him, medical bill during practices. You know, the bullying with Jordan was so bad that Cartwright once said he wanted to break his legs. You know, it's said that Jordan would hide his teammate Horace Grant's food from him when Grant had a bad game. 
you know, he yelled at another player on his team. You're a loser and you're you've always been a loser. You know, he went to Rodman's apartment one time and pulled him by the nose ring to bring him back to practice. So although Jordan's teammates didn't like him, the Bulls were a successful team. And you've got to ask yourself the question why. So the reasons why the Chicago Bulls were successful can be linked to, in my mind, six qualities that research shows are actually key to an effective teamwork. So the first one is trust. The other Bulls may not have liked their leader, but they trusted him and each other to keep their word, to honor their commitments, and to work for the good of the team. Interpersonal norms, right? They had rules for engagement for the team's social dynamics that determined how they managed conflict, how they collaborated, how they communicated on and off the court. And these norms, you know, they contributed to a common purpose and a sense of belonging. Operational and compositional norms. So to achieve goals, teams use clear methods. Effective teams use clear methods, including that shared language, processes, and approaches to decision-making. So, you know, the Bulls also had this clear structure, role clarity. Everyone knew what their role was, knew what their position. Not everyone was trying to be Michael Jordan, and Michael Jordan wasn't trying to be them. So they also had mission alignment. They understood and agreed on the importance of their uh, goal in winning championships, and they had results focused. So whatever you might say about Jordan, he was focused on the bottom line goals and objectives, and so were his teammates. And then finally, strategic adaptability. The Bulls focused on the big picture. They drove, you know, the big picture to drive and continue future success. So they focused on what's most important while learning new approaches, being able to innovate in the moment on the court, adapting in the face of challenges like injuries. So there's no question, right, that Michael Jordan's opposable thumb made him one of the greatest slam dunk artists to set the foot, set a foot on a basketball court. Would never argue with that. But it was really effective teamwork that brought home the championships. So sort of bringing that back to organizations, you know, there's a reason why learning and development companies uh, find themselves going back and back and back and back and back again into organizations to uh, focus on teamwork. And part of that reason is we're often focusing on uh, cohesion. You know, it's our recommendation. That's our client's recommendation, you know. And so we go in and we do that work around cohesion over and over again. And teams are happier for a minute. And then we're doing it again the next year and the next year, and the next year after that with no long-term results. So when I think of, uh, you know, when I think of your question and I think about that space, we really have to explore what is it really that makes teams effective? And that's where we're going to have that impact that goes beyond what we've had so far. Well, I think those are just uh, brilliant points, Jason. Uh, I mean, a couple of things that stand out to me uh, in talking and thinking about this. One is using that example with the Bulls. Recall that that Rodman, in fact, as an example, um, actually almost created some um, miscohesion or, or loss of cohesion with the team because he had previously played with the Detroit Pistons in the 1980s, which was one of the Bulls' biggest rivals. And I remember when he came in with the Bulls, there were a lot of questions about can they actually mix? Can they make this work? Because these were heated rivals for many, many years, and maybe they can't even get along with each other. So, uh, which says something about cohesion and and the, and, the, and the value of cohesion. But I think perhaps an even 
broader point here concerns uh, what we know about cohesion and, and, and its value. And I think part of the reason we know so much about cohesion is because when we do studies of teams, we measure what's easy to measure, right? So measuring team performance can be hard because sometimes it takes a long time before you actually see those teams' results or, or to see how, how much change to the team or any kind of intervention had on the team's performance or productivity. Uh, but you can measure cohesion really easily. You just ask people, you know, how much do you like each other? How much do you get along? Right. And so a lot of times when people do research on teams and they want to, you know, particularly in the academic area, when you want to publish studies and you want to make a reputation for yourself as an expert on teams, you go for what's easy to measure. This is true in other things too. This isn't just true in, in research. This is true in, in sports. And I think I've talked in other uh, episodes about in baseball, how for a long time, they measured the things that were very, very easy to measure. And it turned out those things weren't actually related to performance and results. But it's the same thing in the team's literature, I think, as well. We measure what's easy, cohesion, and we come to conclusions about cohesion. But those aren't really related to the team's actual performance. Yeah. And that the point that you're making, Ryan, I think is a great one. It reminds me of the movie Moneyball and the book Moneyball. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, for a long time in baseball, to your point, they were measuring all sorts of things that were simple. And that put a big emphasis on your like superstar players, the ones who could hit the home runs, the ones who could hit the triples. But what they really realized when they truly looked at it and were able to research it, it was the role players. And so it's not just about the things that we have in common as a group. And I think cohesion pushes us toward commonality. When really an important part of it is also our individual differences and how they can be blended together. Yeah, I think that's a great point, because if you look at the time whenever the Bulls were actually going to acquire Dennis Rodman, uh, you know, Ryan mentioned he was already on one of their, uh, you know, heated rivalries teams uh, in the late 80s, whenever the Pistons won a couple of titles back to back. But it was also his off the court antics that people were concerned about. And also just the fact that he could also get into it on the court with other players and maybe get technical fouls, things like that. But he played a key role. He filled a void that the Bulls didn't really have. And he knew what his role was. So there was the role clarity. Um, The cohesion actually did work itself out. I was fortunate Mm -hmm. enough to about a year ago to speak to an IO psychologist or a psychologist who was actually working for the Bulls at the time. He said the Bulls actually... the teammates ended up loving Rodman as much as anybody within the facility, which I, I found was interesting. But Well, and it's an interesting thing. And, you know, not just taking the Bulls as an example, but what I think part of what happened with Dennis Rodman was that unlike when he was playing at the Pistons and the Bulls, they were able to figure out what the roles were and get clarity. Mm-hmm. And part of Michael Jordan's role as the leader was to find that right space for Rodman, um, and to your point, Ryan, about measuring things, I think it's so easy when you're a manager or a CEO or a leadership development company to ask people, okay, we did this development work with you. How do you feel now? Do you like each other? And they say they like each other, but are they being effective? Um, And I remember this one CEO I was working with, and I asked him a question, how do you measure whether our work that we're doing with your team is any better? And he said, Jason, well, it's pretty easy. Am I meeting my strategic objectives, right? So for him, it wasn't about, does my team get along? That's like a nice to have. But are we meeting our strategic objectives? And to Ryan's point, it's a lot harder to measure those things, you know, and draw the direct 
connection. But as somebody who develops senior leaders, at the end of the day, all that really matters, are they meeting their strategic objectives? Are they meeting, are they connected to their mission and landing those things? So, you know, I think sometimes for us, you know, looking more broadly at what the objectives are and whether the work we're doing a lot is aligned with it, even if we can't find direct, 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 direct connection can have more and more impact. Well, Jason, for my next question, I'm curious, how does personality impact team effectiveness? And do you have any examples you can share? Sure. I could start with myself. So um, I'm high on what uh, Hogan calls the mischievous scale. I'm 100. I think you are too, Blake. You're somewhere near me. I'm close. Um, <laughs> yeah, close. So you're a little bit behind. So, you know, it, it, the mischievous scale suggests, and although not everyone in my life would agree with me, that I'm likely to be seen as charming and interesting, but under stress or not paying attention, I can be seen as risk-taking, limit-testing, and even manipulative, Right. So I'm also low on the prudent scale, which means that, hey, I'm really flexible. I'm ambiguity tolerant. You know, I'm good at pivoting, but I'm also probably not that good at follow through. This is just my natural inclination. And I'm also low on a scale called diligence. So I'm likely to be seen by others as really action oriented, but I not may not always follow through may not delegate clearly. So what that means for me as a leader, when you're looking at my team, me as a leader and personality, it's that I can have some serious struggles with building and instilling trust, you know, and it has to be sort of a constant focus for me personally, you know, for all my strengths, you know, it's not going to come easy for me to do those things that will really make it a uh, build and install trust. So there's an element of how personality can play a, a role in it. But let me put an important caveat on that. There's there's sort of no perfect personality um, for, let's say, instilling trust. It's about, you know, there's some personality types that may make it easier, make, make it harder. But it's about knowing yourself well enough to be able to know what you're going to need to lean into and what you're going to need to mitigate against. I can give you another example. Um, I can also think of a client who's high on the bold scale. He's really confident and assertive, but under stress, not paying attention, when his guard is down, he can be seen by others as really entitled, arrogant, overestimating his competence. And sort of the research shows that the thing that's most correlated to organizational effectiveness is employee engagement. And there are five things, right? And the thing that's most connected to employee engagement are what followers think of their leaders. So there are five key things that followers want from their leaders. First one, integrity. You do what you say, you say what you mean, you don't play favorites. Second one, judgment. You make good decisions. Third one is competence. You know, you know what you're doing. And vision, sort of some sense of mission and purpose and effectively communicating that. Ambition for the collective success of the team. You know, your ambition isn't self-focused, but it's focused on the team. And then finally, humility. And so humility is about being confident, but not being arrogant, being able to see your own flaws, be vulnerable, be able to share, you know, your weaknesses and demonstrate that you're also working on them. You know, it's also linked to all those things are linked to trust and the six qualities I mentioned Above, So my arrogant client who won't 
sort of admit to his weaknesses, had a real blind spot for how that impacted the effectiveness of his team. And so, you know, I was actually in a conversation right before this with a bunch of leaders in the organization that's dealing with uh, their return to the office. And the CEO made some enormous missteps in sort of not listening to the workforce. My advice was there, hey, fall on your sword for uh, because, you know, you, you have an underlying trust issue here that is tearing apart your norms. It's tearing apart the alignment to your mission. So, you know, personality is going to play a role in how good we are at doing that and how tough it's going to be. So bring it back to me. One of my real gifts, according to my team, is my resilience. And this is an example of how it goes both ways. So sometimes I don't always see my resilience. Um, I'm high on something that Hogan calls the adjustment scale, which is really about, you know, resilience on one end, maybe a little anxiety and sense of urgency on the other end. So during COVID, one of my employees grabbed me and she pointed out that I was resilient in her mind. You know, I survived a big scandal. I watched the World Trade Center fall in front of my face on 9-11 from New York. I've struggled with mental health issues. But I mentioned to her that one of the real downsides about resilience is that you don't always hear the feedback that other people are giving you. You know, somebody who's more anxious may be more receptive to that feedback. So sometimes being a little bit lower on the adjustment scale can be helpful. So a lot of this when it comes to personality is not particularly black and white, where you have this personal, perfect personality uh, quality for some element of team effectiveness. It's about finding the right balance. You know, so for my client who was high on the bold scale in that example, you know, I'm not all of a sudden going to dial his bold back to 10 or tell him to give up on leadership. But I am going to look at the qualities of other people who have what Hogan calls the interpersonal sensitivity, agreeableness, and help him work on techniques uh, that will improve his ability to sort of listen and be more sensitive to social feedback. And uh, take a, I know I'm going on and on, I have this habit of it, but to take a current world, real world example, you can look at what's happening in Ukraine right now, right? As an example of how personality plays a role in it. So Russian soldiers are struggling, particularly in the moment where their commanders are not with the soldiers on the front line or their communications have broken down. You know, they're having a lot of difficulty adjusting in the moment, unlike uh, how Americans operate or how the Ukrainians operate. In the American army, the Ukrainian army, non-commissioned officers are able, they're, they're given permission because they're aligned with the mission they're given permission to adapt in the moment, even when they can't, you know, uh, get a message back from Washington or their uh, combatant command. So they adapt in the moment. They're aligned with the mission and they're able to still achieve goals. And what sort of happened to the Russian military? You got to roll back to the 1990s. I think it was 1991. And uh, they call it Tbilisi syndrome that developed in the Russian military. And that's named after the capital of the Republic of Georgia, and it's called Tbilisi. So what happened was Russian soldiers were sent in to suppress some demonstrations and other problems that were happening in Tbilisi. Some women got killed. I think a child got killed. And instead of backing them, their leadership in Moscow, Gorbachev and company, threw them under the bus. 
And what that's done is it's created an environment where there is such a lack of trust in the Russian military. They're always, even if they're in the middle of a bad battlefield, waiting for Moscow uh, uh, orders from Moscow. So because that trust broke down and because trust can break down, you know, that between the within the group and with Russian leadership, because they were unwilling to be sort of humble, admit their mistakes and support their team, it's having long term effects long after it happened. Another example that I love uh, taking another Russian example is the example of Stalin. You know, I would venture to guess that he's high on what Hogan calls uh, the diligence scale, meaning at his extreme, uh, he's a micromanager, a little perfectionistic, a little nitpicky, maybe overly controlling, not maybe, definitely overly controlling. And he was also what uh, Hogan might call an extreme example of the skeptical scale. So he was paranoid, always alert for betrayal. One of the things he was always concerned about, he didn't trust doctors. So he micromanaged and he paralyzed those around him because they felt like they couldn't make a decision without his approval. Well, this actually led to his death because... When an aide found him out cold on his desk, the aide went and got another aide and they didn't know what to do. They couldn't make a decision. And that other aide went and got Khrushchev and the KGB director. They couldn't figure out what to do. So then they went to the Soviet Politburo to try and make a decision. By the time anyone made a decision, uh, which should have been to like just call an ambulance, he was dead. He had a cerebral hemorrhage. He could have totally been uh, totally survived. So the point here is personality matters. It can get you killed. No matter how smart your team is, no matter how good your team is, no matter how brilliant they are, personality plays a role in how, and values too, play a role in how a team is going to ultimately perform. Well, I, I mean, I think that's uh, a fantastic answer, Jason. I, I guess I would round out a couple of points or pick up a couple of insights from the, from the things that you're you're mentioning there. And and some of this has come from some research um, that we've been we've been doing more lately as well. But it really ties in nicely with with some of your comments. One thing that stands out to me there is that you know sometimes you can ask yourself a question like, well, what's the perfect uh, personality makeup for a team, or is there some optimal personality makeup for the for a team? And I think the answer seems to be pretty clearly no, is that, is that any sort of uh, team makeup can can be really effective, um, you know, if they are, uh, if they do trust each other, if they if they do have the, the built the, cor- the, the correct or the useful norm structure, if they do focus on results, if they are aligned on the mission, right, if they, if they do all of those things. But what personality really tells us is the ways in which that team might derail, the ways in which that team might miss those objectives. Uh, the ways in which that team might erode trust. Um, and so really, any team can be effective. Any group of, of um, uh, personalities can be effective as a team. But it starts with really understanding the ways that you are going to get yourselves in trouble or the ways that you're going to miss on those key characteristics of high-performing teams. Um, what are the things that are going to derail you and, and lead you astray? And so I think that's where personality really comes in is by making people aware of the things that, that they might, the biases they might have, the, the the sort of normal modes of operating that might get them into trouble and how they might need to dial that back or to um, to switch to another mode in a particular circumstance. 
Yeah, Brian, and that makes me think of one thing. You think of like the four things that are really important to performance in a workplace, right? My experience, you know, what job assignments have I had? Uh, what life experiences I have? That's a part of it. My competencies, those are my behaviors, my skills, my traits that are observable and measurable that people can see. My values, right? What drives me is super important. But what I think is so important about personality and our natural inclinations is that it's a starting point for a lot of those other things. So if I can build an understanding, and personality is hard to change, it's stable over time. If I can build an understanding of my personality and what implication that has for my performance, either as an individual or on a team, then I can make those adjustments that we're talking about that will really make things effective. So Jason, can you describe some examples of the impact of individual performance on team performance? Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite examples, and I feel sort of like uh, very conflicted about this example because I am a Baltimore Orioles fan. So, you know, back in 2018, the expectation around the Orioles was that they were not going to have a successful uh, season due to sort of like, you know, finishing last the last year, sort of aging stars. And while the Atlanta Braves were going to probably, they were in a rebuilding year that year. And, you know, theirs wouldn't be particularly great either. Well, what happened is the Atlanta Braves captured their division and the Orioles finished last in the league. And the two things I think about when I think about that one, I think about two pitchers that were on the Orioles that year. Both of them were traded to the Braves actually in the middle of the year. First one was Darren Day, Darren O'Day, veteran relief pitcher. And in the first uh, first part of the year, his ERA, so his earned run average, was 3.60 with the Orioles. That's the first half of the year. In the second half of the year, it was 1.69 with the Braves. And if you think about the difference between a 3.6 ERA and a 1.69 ERA, That's the difference between winning and losing. And then there was another pitcher, Kevin Gausman. He had a 4.43 ERA with the Orioles uh, in the first half of the year and a 2.87 ERA with the Braves in the second half of the year. So it it got me really thinking, what is going on on the Braves that that is causing these two pitchers to perform better? And it's not actually the pitchers or the individual performers that I was thinking of. What it actually was, what was creating this giant delta between the two sides or the performance in the two teams actually had to do with the trainers. And it had to do with the way that the trainer on the Atlanta Braves focused on bringing people back to the fundamentals, uh, focusing on, you know, identifying what it was people needed to work on. Uh, really getting them into the right role so they were pitching in the right situations. This is the coaches did that part, but really supporting them in their development, paying attention to it. So, you know, when I think about the way that individual personality can really impact things, I go back and I look at the Orioles and I look at their dysfunction in their uh, clubhouse with their uh, general uh, general management staff some of that selfishness, some of that arrogance, some of the other things we were talking about were having a negative impact downstream on team members that wasn't really easy to see. So I do think, you know, 
individual performance, sometimes in corners when you're not where you're not even thinking about it, can actually have an outsized impact on the performance of the team. Well, another key thing that stands out about that that story, Jason, uh, I think is also individual development, right? So it, it's getting that individual level feedback to help make those teams, to make those individuals on those teams uh, higher performing, right? And, and sometimes that feedback requires really honest conversations that in many cases people don't want to have, right? It can be uncomfortable to give people feedback that's negative. But I think, and this really dovetails, I think, back with the point we made at the opening about cohesion. That if you set cohesion aside as a sort of a nice to have, but not necessary to have, you say we're really focusing on results and performance, um, it's actually incumbent on team members and team leaders to um, tell people when they're underperforming to say, hey, look, we need better out of you. I know you can do better. If we're going to achieve the goals we want to achieve, we need you to step up. You know, we, we need you, you, you know, wh- whether if it's in the workplace means, you, you know, you can't be cutting out 30 minutes early. Right. That and, and how that affects the other team members or how that affects the, the way they're they're committed to the team as well. Um, all of those kinds of things, having those kind of conversations is really important because it really sets the focus that we're not here to, to all necessarily get along and like each other. And, and I think that's what happens in, in many failed team cases where you've got a lot of talented individuals. They just don't quite seem to achieve as much as you want. And you ask them and they all kind of get along and they like each other. But that can almost be um, a negative because the focus on getting along and liking each other can make it so that people don't have those hard conversations, those performance enhancing conversations that people really, 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 really need to have. I don't know if you have experience with that. Yeah, oh, definitely. So two thoughts come to mind with uh, what you're saying. One is sort of the thought of sort of just diversity and inclusion. Part of our mm-hmm. whole argument for diversity and inclusion is that individual differences, whether it's because of your race, your gender, your background, because you grew up in West Virginia and I grew up in New York City, that that actually adds value to the team. And sometimes inherently there will be conflicts because of that. But what I often find is the best ideas don't come from the person in the office who's just like me or sees things the way I do. It's, it's from the person who comes in offices and is way more cautious or is way more sensitive. And we lock heads and we completely disagree and sometimes do not go home happy with each other. But we're able to take the best of what we have together and do something better, which goes back to the whole point of why teams are so important, so effective. And the other thing I think of with what you're saying is it's really about self-awareness, Right. Like our core goal in looking at something like personality is really about us being able to develop self-awareness about ourselves as individuals. And then we're able to either lean into our strengths, mitigate against our weaknesses, uh, adjust so we don't derail off the side of some cliff. And I think that the beauty of looking at personality in the context of team effectiveness is that you're able to get self-awareness, not just about yourself, but awareness about where the entire team is and other individuals on the team compared to where you need to be. So you're no longer in a situation, you're working on your own development, but let's say we need to move fast and we need to move it, be adaptable. And I know somebody in the corner who's more cautious. Well, maybe they need a little of my resilience and support that I wouldn't have otherwise been able to to give them. And in the same category of, you know, dealing with trust, maybe I do need that feedback 
Well, it requires that me being aware of it and me being able to seek feedback from other people. So, all right. So one more question, Jason, before we get to the Q&A session uh, from our audience, can you talk now a little bit about some of the organizations you've worked with and provide our audience with some real life examples of how, how well your approach to developing effective teams has worked? So uh, one of the things that I was just thinking about, as you were saying, uh, Hogan made, I mean, excuse me, Ryan made a reference to some of Hogan's research that uh, on team effectiveness. And we've been utilizing some of that research on team effectiveness to really drive some of our team development. And I had mentioned before, a lot of the team building work we've done has been focused very much on team cohesion historically. In the industry, that has very much been the focus. And we've been really looking at those core things and really thinking about putting it into four buckets, right? And those four buckets are really about intrapersonal, what's going on in the person, intrapersonal, which is about your relationships with other people, operational and strategic things. And when we put it in those buckets and focus on those buckets, what we see is trust. That's the core intrapersonal thing. Interpersonal norms, that's obviously the core interpersonal thing. And then being able to have compositional operational norms and also a results focus is really key to the team being able to operate. And finally, the mission alignment and the strategic adaptability are core to them being able to be strategic. And what we found is we've worked with teams in this situation, we're getting much better results in the sense that we're going in and we're working with teams with this framework and this model, and they're often able to identify challenges and stick to addressing them in a much sort of longer term or uh, thoughtful thoughtful manner. So what comes to mind, um, I'm working with an international development organization right now where they have had some challenges around trust within the organization. And our typical, the typical industry approach there would be to very much focus on trust and cohesion. But instead, what we did was we did focus on trust, but we looked at what trust was affecting. We looked at how it was causing their interpersonal norms to break down. We looked at how it was disconnecting them from the mission. And then what we realized was that what one half of the team was talking about with trust and another quarter of the team was talking about mission alignment and what this group was talking about interpersonal norms was all integrated. So we were able to address it in a more holistic way, understanding that research and understanding. I can think of another organization, large transit agency, same sort of underlying trust issues. You know, like a lot of technical organizations, people don't get a lot of leadership development skills by the time they get to their first management role. And there is some toxic behavior that's existed. Well, what we've been able to see, you know, through the work that we're doing and really focusing on the six qualities that really drive uh, team effectiveness one of the great things about that from our perspective is they have been able to slowly but surely in a more sustained way become a functional team and they've been able to spread that to other aspects of the organization well it actually appears that we have lost ryan momentarily oh there he is ryan sorry we lost you um but i think with that Unless you have anything to add before you you jumped off, because I, I know you didn't hear the the end of Jason's response there. 
Uh, uh, no, I, I did not. I think it, I think it's actually probably good to transition to the Q and A, because I didn't get to hear the end of what Jason. I I don't know what happened. My internet dropped for just a moment there, and I I lost the. Trust me, Ryan. It's nothing you haven't heard me say fifty times. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. Let's get to the Q&A now. Um, again, if you do want to submit a question, please use the, the Q&A feature uh, rather than the chat. But I'm going to actually, I'm going to take two questions from one individual. And also, I think it'll help answer maybe another question. So the first question is, uh, do you think the Bulls might have performed successfully, uh, i.e. winning eight in eight years if the personalities had gelled or liked each other more? And I'll answer that one really quickly. And that's no, because um, actually the two years that they did not win um, were the two years that uh, Michael Jordan was actually retired from basketball briefly. Um, he was out the entire 1994 season to play uh, professional baseball. And then he was out for the first half of the 1995 season um, playing baseball as well. Returned to the team midway through the season, but um you know, you can look at a variety of things. Maybe he just needed to knock off the rust. But, you know, was there a chance they could win seven? Maybe. But I still think that uh, those two were probably not going to happen. But that's why that didn't happen. I but have this- a thought on that one, Blake. Okay. I, You know, part of me says maybe, although this is a part without evidence, they would have done a little better if they had gone along better. But then I step back and I think about it. What would have led them to get along better? them probably being a lot more alike and their differences is what made them effective. So, you know, I think part of what's important about teams and it goes back to the original stuff that we were talking about is we leverage our strengths and weaknesses when we're out there in Bryce Canyon and my five foot two self can't reach that branch and Blake, I don't know how tall you are, but you can reach that branch, right? That adds value. So our differences really do add value, even if they create conflicts, even if you want to be in the, you, I can crawl under the rock to get shade, but you can't. So we have this argument, this battle over where we should get shade, but really actually our differences are what's making us effective. I'm six foot. So that's a fair, fair analogy. Uh, But uh, the second question that relates to this um, and also to, a question we received earlier, how does Hogan assessments relate to basketball teams? And then the question here is how might the Bulls teammates have worked more effectively together had they taken the HPI, HDS, and MVPI? Uh, well, I guess I, I will uh, try to jump in and answer there. Um, well, uh, look, I, I mean, the, the, the biggest thing that we, we can tell you is the, the ways that I, I this is, goes back to something I mentioned earlier, the ways that you're likely to derail, right? The, the things that are likely to cause um, you to, to have missteps as a team, um, to, um, to, to disagree on what the mission is to, to, uh, destroy or erode trust among team members. Uh, a lot of that stuff really comes out of the assessments. And so you can learn that in an, at an individual level, but I don't think it's a situation. And I think this is what we thought for a long time. And I'm not the only one. I think there's a lot of people who thought this, that, that the, the key to effective teams is getting the right blend of personalities all together. And while there is some truth to the notion of you want to have people who could fill different roles and sometimes personality is associated with that role. I know someone asked about the team report and our team report does in fact talk about different roles and, and probably you want to have all of those roles filled. 
Um, it's there, I don't think there's any good evidence that there is a right blend of personalities for the team. Instead, the way to think about the team's personalities in terms of effectiveness is what are the things about the, the individuals that are going to lead the team to derail, to become dysfunctional? And so that's what I would have done with those assessments and said, okay, here are some potential watchouts for us as the team, some potential concerns we might run into, um, things that might uh, impact our strategic adaptability, right? Maybe we have some folks who are, who are too traditionally minded, who, don't, who aren't open to new strategies and new ideas. And um, to be a really effective team, we're going to have to have, we're going to have to recognize that tendency, but also when the right moment comes up, we're going to have to counteract that tendency. We're going to have to step outside our comfort zone and say, you know what? I realize this is not the way I usually operate, but I'm going to operate this way here so that we can get better. And part of the challenge, Ryan, I think we tend to explore things from like a strengths-based model often, where we're looking at the strengths of the individual, the strengths of the team. And if you talk to people, most people, or a lot of people, many people, about what do they remember and what do they learn and grow most from? It's their failures. Mm-hmm. I think we don't spend enough time in that space getting it to the point where we have acceptable failures, but we don't have unacceptable. But our strengths-based focus has historically focused on leveraging team strengths to be successful. But you know, most people who know me are going to probably uh, fall over when they hear me say this, but I think humans are naturally good at forming teams. It's what gets in the way, the derailers, that creates the real challenge. I really think we're naturally evolutionarily good at it. And so what we really have to do is watch out for the watchouts. They're going to break apart teams. Well, we've got a lot of good questions, but this one I, I really want to ask, and this is for both Ryan and Jason, is would you say the principles you are referring to are universal across sectors? Um, you know, thinking uh, nonprofit and faith-based more specifically. Yeah, I'll jump in first. So a lot of the research we did around high-performing teams uh, and, and understanding what is uh, what, what, what are the key factors for high-performing teams or what do all high-performing teams have in common actually was across industry. It was across sector. It was across even level. We looked at C-suite teams. We looked down at lower-level management teams. Um, and so the, the things that Jason and I have been talking about here uh, really do show up across a whole variety. They show up in different countries and different languages. Um, we, we think that these are really critical for, for team performance in, um, in just about, a, well, at least in any modern context. Yeah. And to go back to what we were talking about, you know, it is really easy. I do a lot of work in the federal government, do some nonprofit work, private sector work. Everyone thinks they're unique. For the most part, they're very similar. But I think that one of the, you know, one of the sort of like, underlying pieces that exist in any organization or any team, we're in a competition for resources, right? Uh, Whether it's resources inside our company, whether it's a war between two countries, whether it's like that example I gave before about uh, federal agencies competing for the attention of um, Congress. And it's the same thing for a church. You know, you're in a competition for dollars, you're a competition for hearts and minds, you're in a competition for souls. And the effectiveness of your team, trust is important, right? Interpersonal norms are important. 
Having role clarity is super important. Having a shared language is important. Being aligned to your mission is super important. And being adaptable is super important. So when I look at those core qualities, they tend to flow across, or not tend to, they do flow across all the organizations I work with. Well, I think we have time for one more question. And Jason, I think this one will be right in your wheelhouse. Are you able to share any activities you found effective for building trust in teams? Yeah. So, no, kill the bad guys. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, generally, I think w- what we focus on, and it really is hard to figure out the best ways to work around and deal with trust and assess trust and do it. So it all depends on what kind of trust-related work that we're doing. But certainly when it comes to trust, unlike, let's say, dealing with cohesion, you're not dealing with something where people are super comfortable just jumping out and sharing their underlying uh, trust issues, particularly if there's an imbalance of authority in that situation. So often what we're doing, working with trust, isn't so much one exercise, but it's many, 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 many exercises over a long period of time meant to create and model that kind of psychological safety that gives people the opportunity to um, to share. So it's a wide variety of tools that we normally use in the field. But what it's done when it's trust is with a lot of patients over a lot of time, also realizing that everybody's first answer isn't going to be their last answer. So you keep on asking, you keep on moving with them. Did that cover the question? Yeah, I think so. But with that, that should wrap this episode up. I want to thank you, uh, Jason, and also thank you, Ryan, for, for being able to participate in this, uh, the second edition of the Science of Personality Live. So thank you. Well, I just want to say thanks also to Jason uh, for, for joining us again. It's always so great to connect with you, to speak with you, to get the insights that, that you're getting from your work with clients. And, and I also want to say thanks so much to our audience for being here today, being very active participants with such great questions. I wish we could get to them all. Um, but I, but we really do appreciate you being here and we appreciate, uh, your support of the podcast and, um, yeah, we, we hope to, uh, to, to chat with you all again soon. Yep. I love being here too, as well. Love the science, love the impact. Just want to say one quick thing, one caveat for everyone. We talked a lot about Michael Jordan, right? You know, bullying your team is not necessarily the ideal way to go. Um, there's some great advantages to building cohesion in a team. But the essential, I think, message, the essential takeaway is it is not the core piece to effectiveness. So, you know, ultimately, I think in using that example, we want you to think about it. And I want you to, uh, I want people to be able to sort of uh, use it as a way to recognize uh, that. Um, and see the things that really, really, really will make teams effective. It's good to have the nice to have. It's great to have the things that are going to make you effective. Well, I think that's a great way to to wrap this up. So appreciate it, Jason, and look forward to to talking with you in the future. Thanks, guys. And we want to thank all of you for joining the latest edition of the Science of Personality Live. And also thanks to Jason and Ryan for the excellent commentary. We'd love to connect with you on our social media channels. You can follow Hogan Assessments on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook to stay up to date with all of the exciting things we're doing. Also, if you're not already one of our loyal listeners of the Science of Personality podcast, be sure to check out our full library of episodes at thescienceofpersonality.com and be on the lookout for a new episode every other Tuesday. Cheers, everybody. 
This has been the Science of Personality podcast brought to you by Hogan Assessments. You can access all podcast episodes on our website, scienceofpersonality.com or on the streaming service of your choice. See you next time. Thank you for joining us for this collaboration between the Science of Personality podcast and the Silver Linings Handbook. I'm Jason Blair, and we'll see you again next week.